Welcome back to the Stab Podcast channel. I'm Stace Galbraith and I'm your co-host for the travel series for surfers presented by Red Bull and Stab. No Contest is back for another season and so far, Mr. Ashton Goggins has taken us around the world. We've been to San Francisco and Morocco. This week's episode features the beautiful, the idyllic Tahiti. Tahiti's been in the headlines a lot lately, mainly for the 2024 Olympic Games, it will host the surfing for the Paris Olympics. And Ashton got to spend some good quality time there with none other than Michelle Berez, Cowley Vast, Vahine Fierro, Tahure Henry, and one of Tia Hopu's forefathers, Mr. Peva Levy. Ashton's gonna give you a behind the scenes look at what makes the village at the end of the road so special. You can watch this episode on stabmag.com for free and on Red Bull TV. All of the seasons of Red Bull No Contest are there for your viewing pleasure. If you haven't seen the Tahiti episode already, we suggest you jump into it. But for the meantime, let's get into the show. Welcome back once again, my friend, Mr. Ashton Goggins. First time we caught up was together in Venice Beach. I last caught you in Salzburg, Austria. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Uh, I mean, Ashton Goggins. <laughs> How are you, Stace? Uh, I'm in San Francisco. We just premiered the San Francisco episode of No Contest at the Balboa Theater with like the entire local crew. Uh, the after party at uh, Maddie Lopez's bar Pits, and yeah, it was a rager. It felt great to premiere it. Um, and who was best on ground at the bar? Who wins best at the bar? I mean, Matty Lopez hanging out with his... So Matty's front teeth have been busted out for the last year. And Matty is one of the most intimidating characters. If you When you first meet him, he's like the OG local from San Francisco. Uh, but he's like so disarming when, when you walk up to him and he flashes this big toothless smile at you. Uh, so yeah, it was Maddie's bar. He was the, the, the bell of the ball last night and the star of the episode too. Um, but yeah, it was cool to get everyone together. Premiering the episodes in town. Um, oh man, that's just such a cool experience and like a feeling getting to see the reaction. Like you never get sick of that. Yeah. And I wish that we were able to do these types of events in all the locations. It's like a theater, like proper, like seating so you can sit and hear the episodes because they're definitely different than most surf films that we premiere where it's just like, you know, high action surfing and loud music and people can just hoot and holler and drink beer and like rage. It's like you have to sit and watch it and enjoy it. There are moments of hoots and hollers when they when they happen. They're like, you know, little exclamation points. But for me, like watching one of these episodes at a premiere in complete and total silence is my favorite thing because uh, it means that people are actually fucking paying attention. Um, and yeah, last night's was rad. Um, and I wish that we could show all the episodes, but you know, it's, you know, at this point it's, you know, with all four episodes, it ends up being like almost an hour and a half of viewing. So we've just been showing one or two episodes at each premiere. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it might be a little unrealistic to get people to sit down for that amount of time. But then again, I think you could probably push the envelope there a little bit next time. So yeah, we'll add that to the show notes moving forward. But, um, Mate, you've been everywhere again this year. Tell me a bit about Tahiti because it's in the limelight at the moment. It's in the headlines everywhere for good and bad reasons. And it's an incredibly special 
and protected part of the world. So it must have been you know, really cool to spend some time there. Yeah, we put Tahiti on the list for this season for all of the reasons you would expect because the Olympics are coming around next year and it's going to be the biggest story in surfing probably of the last, you know, probably of the next decade realistically if the contest, you know, happens and the waves are, are pumping. But as you know, having visited uh, Tahiti and having been down to Chopes, it's a very delicate and sacred space like the village of Chopu is one of the most pristine beautiful natural environments that I've ever visited and there's been a lot of concerns around what the biggest sporting event in the world landing in that little village is going to do to it and so the previous times that we've been there we've been there during the contests and it's been focused around you know where the surfers stay and like where the guys on tour like sort of post up at the different homestays and this episode, we got to go back and stay with Tahure Henry, who's always been our host in Tahiti, um, who is the host for the Brazilian team this year for the Olympics. And <clears throat> the point of this episode was to go back and to get like the real, true history of Chopu and to see sort of what the place looks like today and why people don't want that to change. Why there's like, why it is so important to keep that village a village. We flew down and stayed with Tahure Henry, who Tahure runs all the water safety in Tahiti down. He houses the Red Bull skis for the team down there. So if any of the surfers are coming down to surf, they have all of the resources that they need at his homestay. And what was really interesting was right when we showed up, you can immediately feel that there's stuff going on because of the Olympics next year. There's a giant construction site right at the end of the road, right before you cross the river, where they're building a new walking bridge to replace the bridge that was damaged in the floods. When we originally planned these trips, we were supposed to be in Chopes the week that they flooded this spring. Um, and so we had to cancel the trip, and we were originally going to cancel the episode because it was like, it seemed insensitive to show up on the tail end of what seemed like a pretty massive disaster for the local community. Um, and in talking to those guys, they were like, no, come down. Like we're, you know, we're, it's cleaned up. We're like getting it in order. Um, and they wanted us to come down and show what was happening. And so for the entire 10 days that we were there, pretty much most interviews and we were able to like edit out the sound, but most times that we were filming, there was the sound of jackhammers and saws and construction happening, um, in the village. And it's thankfully been channeled into like a sustainable development what they're trying to do there it's mostly the local homestays sort of adding things to their properties to be able to host whoever's coming so Tahure has been able to build some you know some new little lodges and you know to get new refrigerators and like basically just get like a little bit more infrastructure to support all of the athletes coming for the olympics it's up there with pipeline in hawaii as far as like you know noticeable recognizable talked about waves in the world like there's there's nothing else like it it's it's the most it's the most unique wave we have and there's a certain local crew that uh you know trying really hard to i guess keep it as special as they can it's it's always a catch-22 with places like that. You know, there's the support that comes from the wave being popularized, but then it is at times being pushed to its limits with the capacity and what it can hold. And um, 
you know, the World Tour's done a pretty good job of going there over the years and, and keeping it as, you know, low-key as they can with structures and, 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 and you know, people and, and things like that. But then the Olympics is another conversation altogether. Um, it's a lot bigger playing field. There's people coming from all over the world and just different expectations. And so... Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it folds out, and I hope that everyone can find a place that suits both parties. You know, being able to hold a world class event there, as well as you know, keeping it, you know, as untouched as possible. So, going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. But you mentioned, you know, flying in there, Tahiti and its relationship to where you live in Hawaii is is super close, and then same for us coming from Australia. Like it's a pretty pretty straightforward process to get there um what's it like once you're actually there and you land at the airport you know how do you get to chopu yeah so i mean like you said for me growing up in florida tahiti felt like you know the most exotic far off place on the planet but now for me living in hawaii it's amazing how close it is i mean the fact that tahiti and hawaii are part of the same like wsl division as far as the qs goes um there's a really really tight connection between hawaii and tahiti and, you know, flying there, it's like a you know, five-hour flight from Honolulu. Flying in, you fly into Papaete. You're basically in this beautiful little harbor city where you can catch a ferry to any of the outer islands or you rent a little car or get a taxi about an hour and a half south to the literal end of the road, which is, I think, always surprising for people when they arrive that it's literally a dead end. <laughs> And there's the wave. You get dropped off at this little roundabout with a little, like, sort of novelty wave to get a, a selfie in front of. And the Snack Hinareva, the only restaurant in town, and then the walking bridge. And you cross that bridge and you're in the village. And it's a village. It's beautiful little family estates all sort of tucked into the little valley at the base of this gorgeous two-peak mountain with a river running down the middle and most people will tell you that you know it's been it's been developed over the past 20-30 years to a certain extent but to in in no way to the same degree as most places that are as recognizable and iconic of a wave as chopes like for it to be as famous as it is and for the village to be as small and humble as it is is incredible and that's a testament to like the strength of the character of that local community that they are unwilling to give in to financial investments that will compromise the community to brought us over to meet Peva Levy who if you ask most surfers that have been to Chopes will tell you he's like the godfather of surfing in Chopu Peva's father bought the entire valley of Chopu in 1963 and have not sold a single piece of land since then. His, they still own the entire valley that runs all the way back to the top of the mountain. My father, he bought this, this place in 1963. All this land, all the valley, it was bush everywhere. And uh, a lot of people come and ask to, to buy a piece of land, you know, not selling. You know, the money, it's like sand. It goes. But the land, it still stays, never go. <laughs> Peva sees 
People's waves over their lives every day. His place is facing the West Bowl barrel of the Ahupo. Peva is the most interesting person you can find at the Ahupo, or even Tahiti or French Polynesian. He's the book of the Ahupo. He knows all the stories. His family is from there. Like, he owns the whole valley of the Ahupo. Beva is a very, very kind person. His energy is very contagious, and I know that every day he goes and fills up his water bottles from the waterfall at the back of the valley, and that's all he drinks. He calls it the magic water. He made me try it. Yeah, he told me, like, my dreams will realize if I drink the water. At that time, there was no surf yet, no surf at all. No one around? No one. Everybody was afraid to go over there because there was a lot of shark. And we, we've been hiding ourselves to go over there because uh, our parents didn't like us to go over there. <laughs> I think I was, as far as I can remember, maybe I was the first to ride that wave. Only two of us, my cousin and me. One day he told me, hey, you see this wave? It will be a famous wave. Can you see that barrel? It's special. You know? And now I, I'm still saying that he was really right, yeah. because this wave is so special. The morning that we arrived, um, Kauli and Bahine both qualified for the Olympics. And so it was like a very big, like celebratory moment for the country, for those two to be on the list for 2024 at Chopu, for them to have like the home field advantage competing for a gold medal. Um, it's pretty incredible. But with that, there are totally healthy concerns around what the Olympics are going to do to the village. Um, and we spoke to Peva about that at length and the meetings that they've had with the, um, with the international committee um, with the Olympics as far as what they're willing to allow the Olympics to build and the infrastructure that they want to put in place in the village to accommodate the Olympics. Originally, they came with plans for like paved walking roads through the entire village and a new driving bridge up at the top of the river to go so that you could get a vehicle across into the village without fording the river. Um, and they were able to sort of push back against most of the developments. The only thing at this point that they had approved was the new walking bridge. The floods basically sort of terminally damaged the original walking bridge that has been there forever. Um, they had like cars and trees like smashing into the bridge. And so they're, they're building a new walking bridge. They're not going to do any of the major sort of like concrete development around the village. And at this point, the only thing that they're still negotiating is the aluminum judges tower that they're planning on, or that they were originally planning on constructing. Um, like you were saying earlier, for the last 30 years, they've used pretty much the same Judges Tower. I didn't even. I thought that they had to build a new one every event, and that was part of why it was, you know, a fairly expensive contest to run. But it turns out that they literally break that wood judging tower down and put it in a container right off the end of the point, and put it back up every single year. And it doesn't impact the reef, and it doesn't, you know, it's not a blight on the natural ecosystem of that lagoon, and it doesn't have any negative effects on the the reef or the ecosystem there. Uh, and the new tower that they're proposing is fucking crazy. It's like a aluminum, like water world looking like apartment building overlooking the lagoon. Um, and 
there's just in the last week, obviously most people would have seen that there's been like massive protests in the village um, to keep them from doing that. And it sounds like they're probably going to get their way and that it looks like they're going to build a more substantial structure on the point on the beach, which people will still be able to see the wave, you know, obviously at a great distance, but the judges will be set up in the original like OG tower. Um, and what was also remarkable is that I don't know if you saw the fucking cruise ship that they're bringing in to create the athlete village for the surfing part of the Olympics. They're bringing in, I think it's called Aranui five, but basically like a 500 meter long yacht that they're just going to anchor off the coast, um, of the village and basically house, I think something like three or 400 people there. I, I might be wrong on the numbers there, but yeah, like a, definitely a huge and dramatic workaround like boating in the at the Olympic Village for Tahiti. Yeah, I think we need to just quickly dispel the myth there that they're going to anchor it in the channel. Uh, that they're not going to do that directly yeah. at the, at the uh, channel where where the wave is for the contest. But uh, they got to anchor it somewhere nearby, and uh, it's certainly yeah, it's a city, it's a floating city. Like it's going to be a massive lift. Yeah, and I think that 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 is something that they're totally accepting of that for the last you know 20 years most of the viewing that's happened as far as bystanders and like the the you know the crews that are required for the support systems for all the surfers it's all been like part of that like amazing little chaotic water world that exists in the channel and i think that that's what they're hoping to communicate to people that are hoping to come to view it in person is listen you're not going to be walking into the village to stand on the point to see what's happening in the water like you can't it's too far away it's going to be people staying in Papaete at the hotels and coming down and getting on locally serviced taxis and boats by all of the locals that run boats out there that know how to navigate the reef system and deal with the moorings and not damage the reef and still give people the best view in surfing like is there anywhere that you've ever experienced this as exciting to watch competitive surfing than sitting in the channel at Chopes for you Oh, it's, it's, it's right up there. Like it's, it, yeah, for different reasons, you know, like you really, you really do feel like you're in the water with, with the heat that's going on. Like it's, it's crazy. Um, and it's a different experience because there's just this otherworldly feeling of like something bad's about to happen. (laughs) And that might be like the right starting to close out on the left. And then you're in the channel on the inside and like in a boat and like, I don't know, we can all swim, but there's still this, like, feeling of, like, oh, this is going to end bad. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, you feel like you are in, but, in, you know, you look up at the, the the mountain, and it's this huge, dramatic, imposing landscape, and then you have that big lagoon and that crazy reef, that horseshoe reef with just water mowing down across it, and then you turn around, and it's just, like, the whole fucking South Pacific dumping onto that reef. And I don't think people realize how close you are when you're in those boats. Like you see people kick out and like, like do a few hops and like sit down on the railing of a boat. Like when you're in the channel there, you know, if you're, if you have a good driver, like you're getting hit with spit in the channel when you're watching that wave. And I'm sure that there won't be that much like front, you know, front row viewing for all those boats. But for the most part, I think that they'll be able to give people an experience that's unlike anything else for, you know, definitely for an Olympic event 
Um, but yeah, for them to be, like you said, like immersed in the natural ecosystem while they're watching the biggest surf contest in the world, it'll be a, uh, it's going to be a spectacle for sure. I can imagine it being the, one of the more publicized like parts of the Olympics next year because it's there, you know, it's like, it's hard for like three to four foot windy beach break in Japan to like make the news in any way. But if they get solid chopes and it's, you know, there's narratives around, you know, the, the competition that are compelling, which of course there will be. Um, yeah, I, I'm very interested to see what it does for surfing. Um, and, you know, for, for the local community, I think the opportunity for, you know, a Cali Vost or a Vahine Fierro to like bring home a gold medal, um, it's an incredible opportunity for French Polynesia um, to have those guys uh, in the contest. Oh, definitely. I think for the local community, like having those two in the contest is going to be massive. You know, like we've seen what the Olympics can do for some of these athletes with, you know, maybe a growing profile. It can skyrocket them into being some of the most, you know, household names we have in the sport. And then, you know, it goes across other countries as well because the Chopu is such a specialized wave but you know there's young kids like Al Cleland Jr. and Riaru Itu like if he gets a spot from Japan and you know Al Cleland from Mexico like like Chopu man it just has like this like pipeline like we said it just has this special way of just picking the surfer and there's, pl- there's going to be plenty of capable men and women that could really you know they could have a good couple of days out there and go all the way oh I think that last year watching Cowley like beat Kelly going switch stance was like a fucking shot across the bow of the entire international surfing community of like oh okay this kid's serious Vihine is one of the coolest people that I've met this year and really spent time with as far as like the, the no contest season I'd seen Vihine around and like spent a little bit of time with her over the years just in, in passing but to be able to hang with her and to get a sense of like her upbringing and where she came from, she's an incredible story. Um, the island that she grew up on, Huahine, is it's a wave that you can't, you know, an island that you can't film. It's like growing up on Kauai if you were Hawaiian. And her island is incredibly famous amongst French Polynesia for creating like world class world class athletes in all different disciplines. There's tons of like combat fighters that come from Huahine. They're like a warrior tribe and her father is a surfer from California who was sailing through French Polynesia and took a boat up onto the island and was stealing bananas and got caught by Vahine's mom and went through all of the like gnarly sort of you know process that you would have to undergo of like courting a native you know female from the village as a you know white guy sailing through French Polynesia and endeared himself to the local community and is like you know he's a shaper and built all their all the girls boards when they were kids and um yeah she's like such a special human being and her whole family um her sisters are you know the next up and coming like sort of new faces coming out of Tahiti as well and Michelle talks about it in the episode but with Vahine like breaking down the door you look at the girls coming up behind her and um you know throughout Tahiti and French Polynesia as a whole the best young surfers are all girls um there's like from uh, Tyra Zabrowski and all these young girls who are like you know 10 11 12 years old and already getting their first barrels at Chopes 
up to Cowley Vost's sister, Eileen, and Vahine's sisters. Um, it's a radical young generation of surfers. And for them to be all coming up as Vahine is about to hit the world stage, you know, as an Olympic hopeful, um, it's a really exciting time, I think, for Tahitian surfing. Did you get to check out Marlon Brando's island? No. Marlon, what? Marlon Brando's island? Marlon Brando bought an island in Tahiti, like, in the 60s. Wow. Of all of the random trivia that I would be interested in that no one told me on this trip, that seems like a glaring omission to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's pretty crazy. Like, I don't know much about the story, but I think... Hey, I'm always up for a new trip to Tahiti. So if you want to, um, you know, put it in the put in the logbook for Tahiti episode, you know, version number two. Let's do it. But uh, yeah, Marlon Brando owns, or did once own, an island in Tahiti, and uh, I believe I believe he created like a crazy eco resort out there, and it's been taken over by someone else since. But yeah, the Godfather, wow. he's got a slice of paradise in Tahiti. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Um, I was just watching Apocalypse Now on the flight over here. Um, <laughs> no, it's um, it's yeah. I feel like Tahiti's one of those places where the more you dig, the the more crazy, crazy stories you find out. And there's other islands around there, and it is very similar to Hawaii. Like, there's not spots you can't just put a camera up everywhere. Like, you're not. Oh, a hundred percent, man. You know, like you've never seen a clip of Bethany, Alana, Malia, Seabass, Gavin Gillette, Barker, Andy. You see a little <laughs> bit of Bruce and Andy if you know, but yeah, most people wouldn't know that. You know, you can't film on Kauai, and it's same in Tahiti. Like, not every island is, um, you know, as commercial, and not every wave is as commercial as waves like, like Chopu, and um, you know, it is a very fine balance between having a spot with like, okay, cool, this wave is publicized and then this wave isn't. And yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a really unique place and a different, uh, a different menu to the other places you've been to, like the seafood and the options there are just incredible. The first trip that I went there to Hure taught us how to make Poisson crew and I'd never had it before. You know, I'd had tons of ceviche and pokey and sort of all the more like traditional styles of raw fish. And I mean, that's basically what it is. It's like Tahitian or French Polynesian ceviche. And there's nothing like it. It's, you know, after surfing all day, like once you get into the rhythm of like eating the Tahitian diet, is, well, accepting that you're like going and eating like the richest French food on the earth sometimes, the, 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 the standard meal at one of the snacks, which is like the, the French Polynesian term for like a cafe, um, the Poisson crew at any snack that you stop will be one of the best meals that you've ever had in your life. Just super fresh, sweet, delicious, like local fish, um, locally squeezed coconut milk and veggies and spices. Yeah, it's, it's next level. Um, but unlike South Africa, I think that most people, you know, South Africa people are surprised by how cheap it is and how incredible the food is. In Tahiti, people are impressed by how good the food is, but they are baffled at how expensive it is. And I think that people have this misconception that, you know, it's a third world South Pacific island, but it's French Polynesia. And it is part of the French, you know, system. It's French prices. And most places, you know, to go get a decent lunch, it's like 20 bucks, 25 bucks. So it is a bit cost prohibitive for... Um, 
you know, as a surf destination for someone who's going on a budget. But if you're willing to, you know, to endure the cost, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, I think most people think of Tahiti and they only think of chopes. And while this episode has a major focus on Chopu and the whole village and that whole conflict, part of what we wanted to get into is that, you know, French Polynesia is like 120 or 130 islands, only like 70 of which are inhabited. And there's waves on a great deal of them. And even just within a short, you know, boat ride outside of the village, you can score a handful of world-class waves on the right winds and tides, which because it's such a, you know, volcanic, tall mountain island, the winds do shift quite aggressively. I think most of the South Pacific's like that. And yeah, if you have the right info and, you know, you have a boat or a jet ski, because that's like the first thing that I tell everyone is like, be ready to deal with boats every day unless you want to paddle 30, 40 minutes to go surfing across super sharp, you know, lagoon reefs and crazy channels. Um, you're dealing with boats and you have to get comfortable, you have to get your sea legs quick in Tahiti. Um, and so it was fun for this episode. We were with Michelle Perez. We got to surf chopes and to cruise around that area. He was, his brother signed him up for his first like traditional paddle race. Within French Polynesia, paddle culture is probably the biggest sport, um, like culturally, that's you know indigenous to the the island chain. Back in the day, and this is partially why when you go to you know New Zealand and see Maoris, or you go to Hawaii, or um, you notice that people from French from the, the the Polynesian Triangle are physical specimens, like they are descended from some of the strongest and sturdiest people that you could ever imagine and that's largely because if they wanted to go between islands if you wanted to go and you know marry someone you were paddling from wherever whatever island you were from to whatever island you were going to you were going there by you know by the own the the power of your arms and so it's still very like popular and, and important to their culture these days like these sort of paddle races Michelle had never done one. His brother signed him up and all of his best friends were doing it and he was like hell-bent that he was going to beat one of his friends and he came dead last, which I think people were baffled by because you look at Michelle and he's like probably one of the like top five most physically like impressive dudes that's been on tour of the last 10 years. You know, there's a reason they call him the Spartan. And him next to like the most physical like characters within paddle culture they were beasts dude like the most radical like i don't even know how to describe the degree of physical fitness that those guys (laughs) have and yeah to see this like big sunday sporting event like full water world sports of every variety it was like this huge community event and they had representatives from all of the french polynesian uh chain as well as New Zealand and Hawaii and um, Tonga and Papua New Guinea and all these areas around that that zone um, was really fun. And after the paddle race, we hopped on a ferry from Papaete to Morea, which I'd never been to, which is where you see those sort of iconic like overwater bungalows and it's where people go to dive with manta rays and sharks and um, really like iconic clear blue South Pacific Island. Um, we went over there to surf with Tariva David and 
crew of the local boys and to do a food tour with this guy, Heimata Hall, who's a chef from Tahiti, who's, his whole career has been about celebrating the local ingredients within Tahiti and the cultural influences amongst French Polynesia, which is a mix of Tahitian or, you know, indigenous Polynesian ingredients and, and cuisine as long as well as French and Chinese, which I think a a lot of people are really surprised by the Chinese part of the food influence there. Most restaurants that you go to will have like a pretty heavy uh, reflection of those three cultural categories, um, which makes for a really, really unique culinary experience as far as getting to taste a million really foreign flavors, fruits and exotic sort of textures. Um, I don't think you could ever get bored in Tahiti um, just eating the like indigenous fruits and vegetables, let alone the like ridiculous bounty of fresh seafood that that area has. Um, it was it was definitely a high watermark. So it's like culture through food and uh, it's really to expose these little mom and pop places uh, to let people know when they travel there isn't just the mainstream get off the beaten path a little bit and it's a great way to meet the locals see what the locals like to eat and where we like to eat. That's the one that really catches everybody off guard. Everybody starts going to food trucks or snack shops. You're like, man, like, where's all this Chinese influence coming from, right? Yeah, the best snacks you can have after or before surfing. Yeah? Refreshing, vitamins, perfect. It's just a little tiny spot right here on the side of the road. He lives across the street. His brother-in-law lives next to him that fishes the fish that he cooks and serves over here. Poisson cru, fresh, super fresh, high turnover, buying small quantities, so it's always fresh. Yeah, well, it was obviously such a special time for you to be there in this like formative year prior to the Olympics. And it's trips like this that just give you like such a special connection to the event when it happens. Like you tuning into this event now is going to have such a different feeling for you watching the event having spent this time that you did there in, in such a you know yeah important moment it's going to be um an interesting next couple of months for Tahiti yeah I hope that they you know they come to a agreement with the Olympic Committee about what they're going to you know really finalize as far as plans go for next year and for everyone to be really comfortable going into the event that there's not going to be anything the dream is that the Olympics happen, that they come and go in the three or four days that are required to run that event. And at the end of it, to he- the village of Chopu still feels like the village of Chopu. If that's the case, I think that it will have been a massive uh, success on all, you know, for all parties involved. And if they get a medal back in that village Whew. or the surrounding islands, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, it'll be, it'll be such a massive... Uh, moment for that country my goodness and and I hope that you know I think there's been this idea that the person who wins a gold medal will you know be the most famous surfer for those four years and I don't know if that's necessarily the case I think if you asked most surfers who won a gold medal in you know in 2020 that a lot of them might not know but I think that given they get good waves and you know Chopu is Chopu for the event that event will probably be one of the biggest surf events in history. 
And the winner of that event, if they were Tahitian, I think will only add to that, like, the historical weight of that event. Um, and to, like, the, the, the sort of broader international narrative that people come to to understand surf culture through, um, of having, you know, someone like a Vahine Fierro or a Cali Bost win a gold medal um, in their backyard, man. It would be amazing. It's, yeah, it would certainly be amazing. And, yeah, I think we all wait with bated breath and wait for it to unfold. And more importantly, we're a long way out, but the forecast is going to be everything. If there's tall, beautiful, wide blue waves... It's going to set the world on fire, like for every surfer in that event, not just the surfers that win, like anyone that competes at Chopes when it's eight to 10 feet and coming out of the West is like, it's going to be a spectacle for, you know, for everyone. So yeah, fingers crossed we get that. Ashton, thanks so much for your time. It's been awesome to catch up and talk all things Tahiti. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors, mate. Thanks, Stace. It's been a, uh, it's been a hell run and uh we're just getting plans together for next year for season eight i'm sorry for season nine of no contest uh it's crazy to say that it's been nine years it's like uh it's like a heritage brand all of a sudden um but yeah i hope that i get to run into you in person again soon uh it's somewhere around the world and uh i'll be uh i'll be tuning into the pod i uh, appreciate you guys Thanks so much for tuning in. Next week's episode will feature South Africa, one of the most diverse surf landscapes in the world. We look forward to having you on the show next week. Chat soon.